The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This is the fourth in a series of four talks on um, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Um, tonight's topic, although I'm not sure we're going to get to it right off, is on, on the uh, samadhi elements of the Eightfold Path, the meditation, what are traditionally understood to be the meditation elements. The Eightfold Path, of course, is the fourth teaching, often the four truths, I think of them as four teachings, on, on the nature of, of suffering and the kind of dissatisfaction that we find in our lives. And so the, fourth, the Eightfold Path is the fourth teaching. The Buddha's teaching, basically, is that we, when we engage our lives, our experience, with the kind of reflexive response uh, that the organism generates in, in uh, response to experience, we set ourselves up for uh, increasing our unpleasant experience. The first of the truths, the first of the teachings, uh, is understood generally to be the truth of, of suffering or the teaching about suffering. It's a list of unpleasant experiences. Birth. You know, we all reportedly complained. First thing we did, birth. Illness, aging, death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, distress, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. All the things that you wouldn't order up for yourself. And life brings them all. When, when we engage with what the Buddha describes as the second element, the second teaching, uh, with tanha, which when we engage that, that list with, with the tanhas, uh, often translated as craving, sometimes just simply desire, but it's a kind of organism-based impulse to prefer our experience pleasant. You know, we don't wake up looking to go back to that horrible restaurant last night. And we don't look for unpleasant experience. We want our experience pleasant. We want to survive and continue to become something in the present. I mean, in the future. And we want to get rid of the unpleasantness in our experience. No surprise there. Those, those impulses are not bad. They're very helpful for uh, our survival. But they also don't bring us peace and contentment. And so when we meet our experience with that kind of response, uh, we add a, a measure of unpleasantness to what already may be unpleasant. The Buddha said that freedom from that second dart is possible. The second dart, he tells uh, a story about the man who shot with a dart and he takes it out and he sticks himself again with it. The first dart, you know, the pains and uh, unpleasantness that come with life. The second dart is what we do to ourselves. 
He said that cessation of, of that unpleasantness that we create is possible through abandoning those impulses, just not taking the bait of those impulses. And he said the way to live without taking the bait, the way to train ourselves, the path to awakening, the Eightfold Path, is also the way of living without dukkha, which is the, the word for, that's often translated as suffering, but uh, also means dissatisfaction, the unpleasantness. Some uh, Tanjev translates it as stress. And that Eightfold Path, I think the first, uh, I, I described it as, uh, I think the metaphor I used was a basketball. It's the way we talk about it in Davis, because we're a big basketball town. <laughs> Or a bike town, I don't know. Um, but uh, the basketball is a metaphor because here's the eightfold basketball. It's a sphere. It's made of rubber. It's brown. Unless it's the one that the Harlem Globetrotters use, then it's red, white, and blue. It's brown. It's got dimples all over it. It's filled with compressed air. It weighs a couple pounds. It's about 15, 12, I don't know, 15 inches across. That's close to eight. That's the eightfold basketball. It is a, a unit which we can dis- make, about which we can make distinctions conceptually, but you can't play basketball with just the brown. You, know, you can't play with just the compressed air. It's a whole basketball. So the Eightfold Path is a way of being, a way of living. It's a path of practice. A lot of us come to Buddha Dharma um, through meditation. And for a long time, I, I thought that it was just a one-fold path, <laughs> uh, right mindfulness. The elements of the path, um, oh, let me rattle them off for you, if you've missed the earlier, <laughs> the earlier uh, talks, would be um, right understanding or right view, right intention, right speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And they're usually presented as right view, right intention. But it's not right in the sense of right versus wrong. It's appropriate. It's the kind of understanding that leads to the cessation of dukkha, to the cessation of dissatisfaction, to the abandonment of tanha, of that craving, of to not taking the bait. Right intention, not right as good as opposed to bad, right as opposed to wrong, but right in the sense that it's the intention that does not lead to the creation of more suffering in the world. Right speech, the same. Action, livelihood. Right effort. Right mindfulness and right concentration. Now traditionally these... these this Eightfold Path is split up into three uh, clumps. There's, there's just an awful lot of information here, but I'm, I'm recapping. The first, the first two would be the wisdom element, Panya element, the wisdom which would be understanding and intention. And then you would have the behavioral element, speech, action, livelihood. And the third would be the um, meditation element, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. 
But you could also split it up in, a, in, in other ways as well. Uh, one way would be to say you've got right view and then practices. So you've got belief and practices. I mean, you could imagine it that way. You have your understanding, and out of that understanding flows intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. I actually split it up in, in four groups, um, which, are, which are a little bit uh, different. I, I set understanding uh, by itself, and then I take the next four elements, intention, speech, action, livelihood, and see those as, um, as, as the elements of ethical behavior, the behavioral elements, from our intention through our uh, speech, action, and the way we live. And then I set right effort by itself as well. And the last two elements, mindfulness and concentration. Right effort I, I, I set up um, by itself because it's so embedded in everything else. In all the other elements, you can't separate it. If you are if instead of the understanding that allows you to be free, you are acting out of an understanding that's confused, um, and you turn up the effort gain on it, you can actually produce results that are not going to be what you expect and might be surprising. So you, you want to be sure that right effort... Right effort is traditionally defined as cultivating the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome. And in this sense, the wholesome would be what doesn't give rise to dukkha, what leads to the cessation of suffering. The unwholesome would be those, uh, those intentions, words, actions, that, that, it, that uh, um, the unwholesome would be the ones that that lead to the enhancement of, of suffering, the skillful ones that lead to its cessation. So it, you, you have to know the difference, be able to recognize the difference. Sometimes we don't. And it's really, right, effort is, is uh, really, there are four of them traditionally, um, which is sustaining those wholesome impulses that have arisen, uh, cultivating ones that haven't arisen, abandoning those unwholesome ones that have arisen, and keeping the unarisen, unwholesome ones from arising. I suppose there's a fourfold table in there somewhere. Actually, if you look at, if you look at right effort closely, it's mostly embedded in the sila elements and the in the behavioral elements it's embedded in intention speech action livelihood so really the heart of the eightfold path is the way we live not so much for a long time i thought right effort meant meditate more you know effort and meditation and it certainly includes you know some some meditation practice, but it also 
uh, infuses the behavioral elements. That's, and, and that seems to me really, really central. And in, in that way, it's really about uh, the effort to abandon tanha. It's about the effort to not take the bait. You know, if the cessation of dukkha, the third truth, is about the abandonment of tanha and the cessation of tanha, the second truth, which is the way it's described in the teachings, then right effort is the effort to abandon tanha. To be able to do that, we have to recognize it when it appears. And then it's, it's the opposite of going with the flow. It's against the stream, as the Dharma punks have seen them with their t-shirts that say, against the stream. So it's, um, it's the effort at right intention, it's the effort to abandon tanha. And then I set the, the and so that's, that's part of the samadhi element. And then the, the last two elements, samasati and, and samasamadhi, Achan Chah, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher, told him, according to Jack, if you take this as meditation, this side, this end of the pen is mindfulness, this end of the pen is concentration. They're, they're part of the same meditation process. Now there's, there's certainly a uh, large number of people interested in jhana absorptions at this point. And there's lots of uh, effort at cultivating particularly uh, still states of mind. And those can be very helpful uh, because if you bring your mind to a very still point, then very subtle motion is noticeable. And you can spot some of these impulses sooner rather than later. But my own understanding of samasamadhi, right, right concentration, which is, is I, I suspect is not shared by everyone, but, it, but it's mine. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. Is that it's the stability of mindfulness. It's the, it's the concentration on the moment, on the present. It's the, the ability to sustain mindful attention. I'm going to talk some about what mindful, mindfulness is, mindful attention. Because it's the kind, of, the kind of meditation practice that the Buddha, I don't know whether he invented it but he did, or discovered it, but it's the, the kind that he taught that was different than the kinds of meditation that were practiced at the time. The concentration practices, the absorptions were, were practiced at the time. Mindfulness, mindfulness practice was something that he introduced. I like to, um, you, you think of the way our attention works sort of in, in a, a metaphor that I <clears throat> heard first from Achan Jumnian. said our, our attention works like the moth and the flame. <clears throat> Excuse me. The moth sees the flame. 
the flame is what is bright in its vision. Everything else is dark. It only sees the flame, and it flies right into it. What it doesn't see is its own compulsion to fly into the flame. It's so absorbed in the, in the flame. And it's a, it's a metaphor for the way desire works in us. We see the object of desire. It could be, <clears throat> excuse me, it could be, you know, a new car, a new partner, a new job, a, a new project, a new pair of shoes, a new anything. And we can become obsessed. That's what we think about. And we, we don't notice our obsession. We notice the object. We notice what it is. It could be an abstract object. You know, social justice. It could be something. It could be uh, an abstract attainment. Um, but it becomes the focus of our attention. And of course we believe that attaining that would make us happy. Part of the function of, of sati, which is the word that's translated as mindfulness, um, Part of the function is to, is to help us see more clearly the way our conceptions, our perceptions, uh, fail us. <laughs> most, of us when we, most of us, when we learn mindful meditation, we hear non-judgmental attention to experience in the present moment. Fair enough? No. Non-judgmental awareness. Um, there's, a, there's even a little Dharma story that goes with it. A guy named Bahia came to see the, the Buddha while the Buddha was on alms rounds. And he says, tell me, tell me your teaching. I've heard so much about you. And the Buddha said, can you come back after lunch? I'm on alms rounds. And the guy said, well, I do know enough about your teachings to know that there may be no after lunch. <laughs> you know, so couldn't you say something now? And so the Buddha gave him this short Dharma talk. In the seeing, only the seeing. In the hearing, only the hearing. In the touching, in the tasting, in the smelling. And in the cognizing, only the cognizing. The five senses and the mind. The six, sense, six senses or the six sense gates, the six sense doors. To see just what is arising and passing at each sense gate in the present moment. It's a kind of um, uh, non-judgmental observation of what's present. And this is certainly one kind of, one kind of um, mindfulness, one kind of sati. <clears throat> the translation is mindfulness uh, is, is uh, one that was made by some Christian monks um, earlier a couple centuries ago. Um, and we're sort of stuck with the word. But for it to be samasati, to be appropriate mindfulness, I'm not sure there's such a term as wrong mindfulness, but for it to be appropriate, it should, it's mindfulness about the cessation of tanha. Because it's part of the Eightfold Path. It's part of uh, the Four Truths. So it's about the cessation of suffering. It's a, the mindfulness about suffering, about tanha, 
bhatuka. dukkha. So it's not just simply, you know, there's a, a puzzle that was posed to me oh, ages ago in a mindfulness class. What is not mindful about watching your fist punch someone else in the nose? What's, 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 why is this not mindful? I'm paying close attention every moment in the present moment. As, you know. but, but of course, mindfulness is spacious. It includes our reaction that compulsion to fly into the flame or make the other, make the nose go away. Getting or not getting. And it's about, it's particularly about suffering. It's about dukkha. So, it, so mindfulness cares. It's an element of mindfulness. There's a... Um, It's, it's defined often in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness, which you may be familiar with. Uh, the, um, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness. And there are four bases for, for mindfulness, mindful attention, mindful attention. So the first would be attention to the elements of the body, it's the, the meditation on the breathing. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. It sounds sort of zen. You know? But it also includes uh, being aware when you're standing, sitting, lying down, walking. Interestingly, it includes um, some other elements. It includes meditation on the parts of the body, parts of the body that aren't visible. So it's, um, again, bhikkhus, a monk reviews the body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, bounded by skin, as full of many kinds of impurity, thus. And then he lists uh, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestine, There are 37. I think that's the number. I'll talk a little bit. Well, maybe I'll say something about this. One of the one of the purposes, one of the functions, maybe not purpose, but the function of mindfulness is to clean up our perceptions, because we, you know, the the distortions of perception, the distortions of view, right, which would be not right view, uh, are to see what is to see permanence in what is inherently impermanent. Well, everything is impermanent. You know, was it Heraclitus said you can't step in the same stream twice because it's changing. And then just more, more recently, Robert Rauschenberg, who was a, an American painter, said you can't look at my paintings twice because the second time you're different. You've already seen it once, so it's not a surprise. You've got, you know, it's not the same you. There's nothing, nothing permanent that we could know because all of our senses are so transient. The sense data is so transient. If there were something permanent, how would we know we encountered it? You know, we have this platonic kind of thing going with, uh, if I say, think of an equilateral triangle, and you think of an equilateral triangle, is that the same one you thought of before? 
start to have this sense, well, there's this, but it's, you know, constructed again in imagination. Everything is changing, everything is impermanent, but we see stability where there is none. We see the potential for satisfaction in things that are incapable of providing it. It's a distortion of our thinking. We think if we could get something, if we get our way, we'd be happy. If you got, I think, maybe I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, if, if everything you had, everything you wanted, the whole world lined up the way you wanted it, it would all be downhill from there. Because everything is about to change. <laughs> so what you get is going to change, whether it's what you wanted or not. But to, but to assume, as, and you know, we, we navigate our lives often thinking, if, I could, if only this, then I'd be okay. And of course, the last, the last element, uh, you know, to, to, not see, to, to, to not see ourself in any of our experience. Our experience is all changing, all constantly changing. There's no permanence anywhere, no entity, no self that sits unchanged anywhere. And then actually the fourth of the distortions of perception is to see beauty in what is inherently unbeautiful. And that, that's, that may, it's initially confusing, it confused me for a long time. And then I realized that, you know, sugar isn't really sweet. It's just a chemical. It just sits there. Sweet is what happens when it hits our tongue, when our sense, you know, our, when it hits our neurology. Beauty, things are the way they are. You know, beauty is what we experience. The sound, you know, the, if there's a tree that falls in the forest, does it make a sound and nobody's there? Only on the Geico commercial. <laughs> Otherwise, a sound is what occurs in our uh, sensorium, in our consciousness, not movement of, of molecules in the, the medium of the air. So I think this list of, of impurities is an effort to try to, you know, there's a tendency to, he wants us to be neutral about the body, to see it as it is. So the first of the foundations of mindfulness is, is, are the elements of the body. There's also a um, set of practices involved in charnel grounds, where you, would, where you would go to the charnel grounds and contemplate the states of decay of, of the bodies that were there. In Thailand today, my understanding is that this tradition, although they don't have charnel grounds, Monks and nuns are entitled to be present in any um, autopsy theater in the country by law because there's no separation of church and state there. So the second of the foundations of... So the first foundation is our body. We practice it. We can feel it. We can see colors, colors and shapes. We hear sounds. We taste and smell. 
The second foundation is about pleasantness and unpleasantness, and it's an interesting issue. How do you know that ice cream tastes good and burning your hand on the stove is unpleasant? How do you know that? You know, it's a direct knowledge. You just know. You don't figure it out. You know? It's like, how do you know the taste of a banana? If we're going to talk about body, the first foundation, how do you, the taste of a banana. You know, how do you know that, what that, well, you just, you just know. If you haven't ever tried a jackfruit, you might know about the taste of a jackfruit, but you don't know the taste of a jackfruit. <clears throat> it's a direct knowing. Pleasant and unpleasant is a direct knowing. It's an important thing because the Buddha says every moment has that valence, pleasant, unpleasant, to some degree. Sometimes it's huge, sometimes the seas are rough, sometimes it's very subtle. But when it's unpleasant, we're back in the realm of dukkha. Remember the unpleasant arisings, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. So paying attention to the feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant valence, directly knowing it, being able to, to recognize it, is, is essential to being able to not take the bait of, of tanha, <clears throat> of a possible, you know, not, take, not go after that, uh, that flame. The third foundation is, the, is, is about... Uh, mental states. So the idea is that you would know, this is a volitional thing, you would know when you're angry. How do you know when you're angry? I mean, how do you know? What's going on? You know, if you paid attention, I mean, it's one thing to be going, you, S-O-B, where do you get off and just, you know, and it's another thing to be saying, oh, look at this, I'm really angry. I can feel tightness in my jaw and my chest. I, the story is going on. You know, they're wrong and I'm right. And, you know, I'm, and I can feel the energy. And what is, you know, that's different, knowing when you're angry. And if, if you aren't able to recognize anger, then how can you avoid the consequences of falling for it? Because the bait of anger is the same as the bait of desire. It's, I mean, it functions like that uh, flame. So recognizing a mind that's imbued with lust is a mind that's imbued with lust and a mind that's not imbued with lust or with, with anger or with delusion. And there's a set of, of couplets as well. Other couplets. And the fourth, so, so knowing this, and this is, it's a direct knowing. This is anger. And sometimes it takes a while. I remember sitting on a retreat once for a couple of days going on and on in my head about this person who worked for me who was driving me nuts. And I, all I was, you know, why doesn't she do, why does she have a outcome? Two days later, I thought, oh, I'm really kind of angry here. And then, of course, things... Things. But it took me a while to recognize it. Um, and the fourth foundation is um, described as 
mind objects. But it's only, you know, it's, it's, these are concepts, ideas, teachings, the Buddha's teachings. And there are several different canons. There's a Chinese and a Pali and a Tibetan. And the, the elements here that are common to all of them are um, the hindrances and the, and the factors of awakening. To be able to recognize in your experience the hindrances. And that's, that's a whole other evening's talk. But the, the things that, that blind us, keep us from being able to see clearly tanha and, and the brightness of its, of its uh, target, would be the desire for, for sense pleasures, ill will, uh, tired sloth, fatigue, worry and restlessness, and doubt. To be able to recognize those. And the, and the qualities that lead to awakening, which would be mindful, there are seven of them. Just rattle them off, because this would be a whole evening as well. But mindfulness, uh, investigation. Investigation, really important. Energy. Um, uh, rapture. Hit that translation of the word calmness, concentration, and equanimity. So these would be the foundation. So what, when you're being mindful, what are you paying attention to? These would be the elements that you'd be paying attention to. So this is one way in which mindfulness, samasati, and samasati again, it's important to recognize that it has to do with dukkha. It's a, it's mindfulness of suffering. So awareness of of suffering and the elements that lead to the arising of suffering. Um, cultivates compassion. Compassion arises from that recognition. Hmm. So there, there's this bare attention in these, in these four, four realms. Mindfulness can function differently as well. Here's a, here's a little piece. The Buddha says, how monks, does a monk comprehend a mode of conduct and manner of, of living in such a way that as he conducts himself thus, and as he dwells thus, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and displeasure, desire and aversion, um, do not flow in upon him. Suppose a man would enter a thorny, thorny forest. Say that fast three times. A thorny forest. There would be thorns in front of him, thorns behind him, thorns to his left, thorns to his right, thorns above and thorns below. He would go forward mindfully. He would go back mindfully thinking, may no thorn prick me. So too, monks, whatever in the world has a pleasing and agreeable nature is called a thorn. Not that there's anything wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with thorns, but if you fall for it, Having understood thus, understood that as a thorn, one should understand restraint and non-restraint. Understand restraint and non-restraint. It's not that you have to abandon pleasant experience. It's to recognize that the pursuit of it may set you up for, you know, I'm I'm in the midst of the Australian Open, and you watch these guys, and they, they... when they do well, it's yay, and when they do horrible, they've set themselves up for just devastation. 
But if you're interested in mudita practice, watch the winners. <laughs> They're always happy. So this is kind of a protective awareness. There are a lot of metaphors in the canon where the Buddha, you know, mindfulness is the guards at the gate of the city. And so mindfulness can function as a protector. It can also, mindfulness is also internal, like we were talking about the pleasant and unpleasant and about the mind states. And it can also be, there's, there's one last kind that occurs, and that's what I think of as induced mindfulness. That's, you know, when you imagine the, the parts of the body, for example, or you, you contemplate uh, in the charnel grounds. Achan Amor used to talk about, uh, you know, you're sitting in meditation and things are going along really well and the mind is starting to settle down. So just toss in a, a word and see what ripples flow. And he, it, was, it was very sweet. He always, the word that he always suggested was mother. Um, if, if that, you know, you, you would sit and you would, but you could choose something else. You could be sitting very pleasantly and think, Rush Limbaugh. See? Ripples. <laughs> and to watch, the, to watch the response. To watch in ourselves. You know, a huge part of being mindful uh, a huge part of our suffering has to do with the reaction that we bring to our thinking, to thoughts, to views and opinions. Because we react to those when, when you know, when we set up the four truths, we bring our, our, uh, we engage our experience with a preference for it to be pleasant. When our thoughts come up and they're unpleasant, we suffer. And judgments, of course, lead us to suffer. Not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, and losing what is cherished. Hmm. In the Abhidhamma, a lot of, which is a later set of teachings, um, mindfulness arises always with, with a whole range of other qualities, specifically um, moral shame, just the, un, the unpleasantness of doing wrong and having done wrong. You know, sometimes when we're sitting, maybe probably happens to all of us at some point or other, we recall things that we've done and go, oh, I can't believe I did that. Can't believe that. Mindfulness keeps that sensitivity present. Um, Non-greed always present, non-hatred, equanimity, always present. Confidence. Just confidence in the reality of the present experience. So, samasati, right, mindfulness, keeps our perceptions from drifting into delusion. Helps us know that with wisdom, help us recognize in any particular situation what's the right course of action. Is it always telling the truth? Is that always the kindest thing? The most compassionate thing? Samasati, 
the Eightfold Path in the service of the end of suffering. Telling the truth, not speaking falsely, can also be a justification for a kind of cruelty sometimes. So it's not just speaking the truth, it's the intention. Now, there's a, a quote in the canon somewhere where the Buddha says, you know, most people look at the results of an action, but the wise look at the intention, at the conditions leading to it. And mindfulness is embedded in the rest of the, of the path. The Eightfold Path is a way of being in the service of the ending of, of dukkha, of dissatisfaction. And it's the Buddha's program of practice, and it's the way, it's, it's the goal and the path. So let me um, just provide a few minutes for some questions or reactions, responses, thoughts, disagreements. To uh, either to tonight or any anything else about the series that we've done. Ah. Well, I thank you for your attention this month, and uh, I guess to take a uh, to, to paraphrase another liturgical ritual: go forth and cling no more. <laughs>